All right, church family, would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we do come together in this resurrection day to declare that you are absolutely, abundantly, infinitely worthy. You are worthy not only this day, but the day that came before it, the day became after it, the day every day until all eternity, Lord, you are worthy. And so I pray this morning that for each person that is in this room, Lord, we know that they are not here by chance. They are here by your design. So I pray that as we move into this time where we have a chance to read from your word about who you are and who we are in light of that, that you would speak to each one of us. I pray that your Holy Spirit would work in this place, that you would change our lives, Lord, that none of us would leave this service in the same way that we came in, that we would leave we're just valuing you more, that we would see your worth and that we would want to live and respond to you by worshiping with all of our lives. We pray that in the risen name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. All right, if you have a Bible, I would like to invite you to open it with me to Revelation chapter 5 this morning. And Revelation, thankfully, is easy to find. If you go all the way to the end of the Bible, you're going to find the book of Revelation. So go all the way to the back. Revelation, we're going to be in chapter 5 this morning. I know we have many guests with us this morning, and so I'll say this. If you didn't bring a Bible this morning, uh, feel free. There should be one in the seat in front of you or maybe under your seat if you're there at the top. Um, Feel free to take that Bible, use it during our service, and then take it home with you. Alongside some coffee and donuts, that is our Easter gift to you this morning. So... Feel free to take that and make it your own. Our theme this morning, if it isn't already abundantly clear by these massive letters behind me, is this word, worthy. It's a theme we started last Sunday on Palm Sunday. We carried it through Good Friday. And now it's going to be a word that we see literally all over the place in Revelation chapter 5. The word worthy, the definition of that word is basic enough. It's going to be there on the screen Worthy means this, to be found, to have adequate character, value, merit, or worth. Now, in light of that definition, I think we all desire to be found worthy. We want to be seen as having adequate character, adequate value, adequate worth. But here's the question, how can we know who actually measures up to this term, to this title, worthy? Who actually can live up to that? Well, Revelation chapter 5 is going to give us the answer to that this morning. But before we go to Revelation 5, I think for those of you who are new, we need to get a little bit more of the background of this book that we call Revelation. Now, if you haven't spent much time reading the Bible, uh, if you were to read Revelation at first glance, it's going to seem very, very confusing to you because it's full of all of these metaphors. It's full of all these symbolic pictures and visions and things that, that, quite frankly, we don't always understand. These are things that are pointing to realities that are greater than themselves, and so they can be hard to understand. But, but this morning, I don't want us to get uh, just slowed down by needing to know this piece and that piece, the meaning of every little thing. You see, the message of Revelation as a whole is actually very, very clear. There's no confusion about what the message of Revelation is, and so that's what I want to really focus on this morning. It boils down to this. The book of Revelation is this, that God is one day going to make all things that are wrong, right. Our God is going to put an end to 
evil and sin. He's going to put an end to death and suffering. He is going to bring justice once and for all. And his people are going to spend eternity with him. That's the message of the book of Revelation. And friends, that is a very encouraging word that these Christians that he was writing to in the first century, they desperately needed to hear that word. You see, their experience in life, just like almost all of us in this room, is the exact opposite of what I just said. Their experience was full of injustice. Their experience was full of pain and suffering, trials in life. It was full of disease and ultimately, in the end, it was full of death. That was their experience. You see, these Christians in the first century were going, undergoing, enduring severe persecution. Uh, the religious and the political leaders of that day didn't know what, know what to do with this group of people that all of a sudden were claiming that Jesus was God and that he literally arose from the dead. They didn't know how to handle that. Christianity was exploding. People were becoming Christians left and right, and they wanted to squash the movement. And so what did they do? They brought out persecution. For many of the Christians in these days, they were either exiled or imprisoned. The writer of Revelation, the Apostle John, had been exiled to the island of Patmos. Other Christians lost their jobs. Others were ridiculed in public life. Some Christians they took and tore away from their families and they put them into the Colosseum to be killed by wild beasts or gladiators. Other Christians they took and they crucified them upside down as a way to mock the Savior that these people said was alive. You see, these early Christians knew suffering and injustice intimately. But you know what's crazy? The more they were persecuted, the more bold they became. I know in the room this size, we have a lot of people. I know that some of you, like those early leaders, those military leaders, those political leaders, you're very skeptical about everything we're celebrating today. That Jesus could be God, that Jesus could actually rise from the dead. You're, you're skeptical about that. I get that. Let me just say that. This, com- this thing doesn't happen. It's not a normal occurrence, right? That a dead man would come alive and never die again. I get that. But this morning, I hope that you will at least consider the evidences that are there. I'm not going to go through all the evidences, but I will tell you this one because we see it in the book of Revelation. That the very same disciples that cowered and denied Jesus when he was there on the cross. Three days later, after seeing Jesus resurrected from the dead, immediately became, began to proclaim him boldly to everyone that they knew. It didn't matter what consequence was put in front of them. Prison, death, it did not matter to that group of Christians. Now you may say, Ryan, people lie all the time. Well, I would agree with you. People do lie when it's to their advantage. But do you realize there was no advantage to being a follower of Jesus in this day? It meant that you were going to be excluded. It meant that you were going to be rejected. And ultimately, probably that you're going to suffer a very painful death. There was no advantage to their lie. And yet these Christians boldly proclaimed Jesus because they had seen a dead man come alive. That's one of the evidences that we see. So all to say, it was during this time period of severe persecution that God gave the Apostle John a vision that would be of extreme importance. He told him, write this down, give this to the other suffering believers. They need to have this picture of what's happening. And so we began to talk about this last week. The vision is found in Revelation 4 and 5. And in this vision, John is given a glimpse into heaven. 
Now, unlike what many of us in this room picture about heaven, when John got a glimpse of heaven, he didn't see a bunch of adults kind of just lounging on white clouds and, and adult diapers, right? That's not, the, that's not what he saw. No one wants to see that, okay? He didn't see a family reunion of his dead relatives. John, when he went to heaven, didn't even see streets of gold or mansions. The sole focus of all of heaven, when John saw heaven, was God in all of his glory seated on a throne. Now this morning, whether you want to acknowledge it or not, that is a picture that God is sovereign. He is the authority over all of creation, that all of creation will one day give account to him. He is on the eternal throne. When John saw this throne, it was almost indescribable. He was trying to make word pictures to help explain it, but he couldn't. All around the throne, he said there were these angels that day and night never stopped praising Jesus. That never-ending praise, they would say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Worthy, you, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. That was the picture that John was given of heaven. And last week we said the message of that picture was very simple, that God is the only one who is worthy. He's the only one worthy of worship. What I mean by that, it is fitting, it is right, that because he created all things, that all things would worship him. You know, it's interesting. Um, we have three kids, and our youngest daughter is two years old. And right now, she has very much mastered one, ter- one term, one word. And that word is mine. Mm-hmm. Any of you have two-year-olds that way? Very few. How many of you have 16-year-olds that way, right? So she's got this word down. It's amazing to me. No matter, she's never created anything. She hasn't designed anything. She hasn't bought anything. And yet, to her, somehow, way, all things are under her. But friends, we all do that, don't we? In this world, we hold on to things as if they are ours, as if we are the creator of the world. And yet, with God, it's different. He is the creator. One theologian said it this way. He said this, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which God does not rightly cry, Mine. He is the creator and sustainer of all things, which means he is worthy and the only one worthy to be worshipped by all. But as we said on Good Friday, not one of us in this room has worshipped him as he deserves. I think we can be honest about that. Not one of us has fully obeyed God. Not one of us has fully served God. We struggle with and we hate the idea that there could be an authority over our lives that we give account to. So what do we do? We ignore that authority. We ignore God. Or even more than that, we know he's there, but we directly go against him. We live as if we are on the eternal throne, as if the entire universe revolves around us. And so instead of listening to what God has called us to do, instead of listening to his commandments, what do we do? We do whatever we want to do. And we take all of this worship that is only worthy for God, and we pour it out on created things. We pour it out on the things that he's given us. We pour our worship out on our jobs, or sexuality, or pleasure, or money, or success. 
family. We pour our lives out on the altar of all these created things. It is this whole attitude of ingratitude and rebellion toward God that what is what the Bible calls sin. I realize that word sin is not a very popular word in our culture, but does that make its reality any less real? You see, since the Adam and Eve in the garden fell into sin, each one of us has chosen sin over God. And sin has affected everything. I mean, you look at our lives, think about the pain, think about the suffering, think about the injustice, the evil that is around us every single day. Turn on the news. Sin has affected everything, broken relationships, anxiety, stress. And ultimately, what has it brought about? Death. You want to know why your heart begins to beat a little bit faster when you think about any of those things? It's because none of those things are natural. That's not how the world was created to be. The world was not created to to have these things. They are a result of a fallen world in sin. The, The greatest consequence, though, of sin is none of those things. The greatest consequence, the Bible tells us, of all of our sin is this, that from now on we are separated from God. Because we are not holy, because we are rebellious, because sin has literally stained us to our core. We cannot be in the presence of God. We are no longer worthy to be with Him. We are no longer worthy to walk with Him in relationship. That is the greatest consequence of sin. And friends, that is the greatest problem for all of humanity. The whole Bible tells us about this one problem, that we are separated from God because of sin. So as we come to Revelation chapter 5, really this is the question that is being asked. Who is worthy? Who is worthy? Who is valuable enough? Who has the merits? Who has the character to bring all of humanity back into relationship with God? We look at verse 1 and 2 with me because that's what it's getting at. This continues the vision from last week in chapter 4 and it says this. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, that's talking about God the Father, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Now, this is one of those places where, again, these symbols are representative of things that are even greater than these realities that are, that are on the page. This scroll may seem odd to us, but what it represents is God's will for the culmination of human history. And so really what this angel is saying, if you look at that scroll, it says it's sealed with seven seals. That means that it is impenetrable. You can't open it unless there is one who is worthy. Humanity needs a mediator to bring these events about. So what the angel is asking is this, who is worthy to reconnect Man to God, who is worthy to make all wrong things right? Who is worthy to put an end to sin and death and suffering? Who is worthy to bring forgiveness that humanity so desperately needs? Who is worthy? So who would answer that call? Look at verse 3. It says, And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. So here's the picture. The call goes out to all of creation, to every human being that has ever lived, that is living, will ever live. Who is worthy to bring about this end? Who's worthy to make all things right? Utter silence. 
from the greatest of humanity to maybe the most unworthy of humanity. Not one person is able to raise their hand. Which points us to this truth. It's a very important truth. We are not worthy on our own. Because we are sinners, because sin has literally stained us to our core, it has stained everything about us, because our hearts are infected, we cannot be the solution to this sin problem. On our own, we cannot make peace with God. This separation that we exist because He is holy and we are not, we can't cross that chasm on our own. That's why the Bible says in Romans 3.23, it says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You want to know what that means? It means that the playing field is level. That from the least to the most, the greatest, that, that none of us is worthy to reconnect with God on our own. I don't know where you think you are this morning on the spectrum between good and evil. Maybe you think you're right up here by Mother Teresa, Billy Graham, or whoever else. Or maybe you think you're way, 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 way over here. But what he's saying is it doesn't matter. We all fall short. Now, let me just give you this picture that hopefully will, will make that a little bit more um, understandable. Uh, suppose this morning that you and I are playing darts together, okay? And the bullseye that we're aiming for is God's commandments, it's, it's his perfect will, okay? It's his perfect holiness, perfection. It is his character. And I get there and I'm, I'm aiming as close as I can. And I don't even know if this is the right motion. I feel like it can be, but I'm aiming and I throw it. And I literally miss that bullseye by two inches. Right there, so close. And then you come up there and you're like, okay, I got this. And you aim, and as right as you're about to throw it, I kick your feet out from you, and you fall down, and you throw the dart, and it hits. It doesn't even hit the board, right? Now, which one of us missed the bullseye? Both of us, right? Even if I think my sin is just, just a little bit of sin, and it's not as great as all these other people way over here, we've all missed the mark of God's holiness. None of us have done His commandments. We have all sinned and fallen short. Jesus, in one place, summarizes all of the Old Testament, all of the laws, into two commandments. He says, commandment number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. Commandment number two, love your neighbor as yourself. He makes it really easy. Only two things that we must do. I don't know about you, but I'm going 0 for 2 on that test. I don't fully love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, and mind. I don't fully love my neighbor as myself. We have all fallen short because the stain of sin goes too deep. It cannot be scrubbed off by our own good efforts. It cannot be scrubbed off by our own good works. No matter how much money we give or no matter how much t- many times we come to church, we cannot clean the guilt of our sin. You know what? This is actually what makes Christianity different than every other religion. You look at almost any other religion and they're going to point you toward this. Here are things that you can do to make yourself right with God. doesn't matter if it's Islam or Buddhism or the New Age movement. Here are things that you need to do to make your life better. Here are the, here's the mountain you need to climb to get salvation. Here's the mountain you need to climb to get with God. Check off all these lists. Christianity says the exact opposite. Christianity says at the very beginning of this journey, you have to realize that you cannot fix yourself. 
You cannot be good enough to get in a relationship with God now or for eternity. The stain is too deep. We are not worthy. Now, I realize this morning, as I even say that phrase, we're not worthy, you may not think that that's big a, that big of a deal. In fact, if you were a kid growing up in the 90s, you may even picture these two guys that are going to be on the screen, right? <laughs> we're not worthy. We're not worthy, they would continually say. But friends, I'm here to tell you that your eternity is based on understanding this one principle. That we are not worthy to fix ourselves. You see, John understood the magnitude of this. Look at verse 4. When he saw that no one was worthy, it says, And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. You see, John is weeping because if there is no mediator that can bring about God's plan, if there is no one that will ultimately bring all things wrong right, then weeping is the end of the story. That battle of cancer and that death of that cancer, that's the end of the story. Every story ends with tears because suffering is the end. Our trials and our pain are the end. If there is not one who is worthy, there can be no real hope for the future, nor there can can be real joy in the present. And that's why he weeps bitterly. But friends, I'm here today on Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, because there is hope. Look at verse 5. It says, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. The apostle John is told, Take heart. Your tears are not the final word. The lion from the tribe of Judah has conquered. Now, clearly here, he's not talking about a physical lion. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus came from the tribe of Judah. He is a descendant of King David, just as the Old Testament had prophesied. And he said, Jesus is the lion that you have been waiting for. There is one who is worthy to make all things right. There is one who is worthy to reconnect humanity into God. And his name is Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah. In every culture, the lion is a picture of royalty and strength, of power and victory. Lions devastate their enemies. And what he's saying here is that is exactly what Jesus has done with sin. Think about this. Throughout history, from the beginning of time, men and women have come and gone. All of them, the greatest, the most noble, the kindest of them, the the purest of them, every single one of them has fallen prey to sin. Generation after generation, century after century, every single man and woman has fallen prey to physical death. Both of these are our greatest enemies, sin, death. And so what does Jesus, the the Lion of Judah, do? He does, comes in and conquers both. Though he was tempted in every way we are tempted, what does it say? That Jesus was without sin. He had power over sin. And as we're going to see here in a moment, he had power over death. Jesus is the lion that we have been waiting for. And that is unbelievable news. But then we see something unexpected. As John turns around, he's in this vision, he sees the the throne. He turns around to see this lion. He wants to know, what is he like? What does it say that he looks like? Verse 6. It says, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw not a lion, but what? A lamb 
standing as though it had been slain. What? A lion and a lamb? Those two things don't go together. How can he be a lion and yet still be a lamb? Well, let me explain this just for a moment. You see, Israel at this time, they wanted a political lion. They were waiting for a political lion, somebody that would come in and crush their Roman oppressors that would free them from that rule. But you see, Jesus knew for Israel and for every single one of us in this room that those physical enemies were not their greatest problem. Again, their greatest problem was what? Sin that separated them from him. And so when Jesus came, he conquered in one way, and that is through becoming the lamb, the sacrifice for sin of the world. He conquers by taking on that role so that justice for sin could be served once and for all. Again, we talked about this on Good Friday, but there had to be a sacrifice for our sin. We can't clean ourselves. So we had no hope unless God did something for us, unless God provided the sacrifice. The Bible says for the wages of sin is death. And that's not just talking about physical death. That's talking about eternal separation from him. Somebody had to take on the punishment of death in order that we could be forgiven so that we could be given life. So what did Jesus do? He came and he voluntarily gave his life on the cross. He took the punishment for sin that every single one of us in this room deserved. He was forsaken by the Father, taking on the wrath of God all on himself so that we could be free, so that we could be cleansed of our sin. Why? So that we could be brought back into relationship with God. He conquered as a lion, but he did so by becoming the lamb, the sacrifice for the world. Isaiah 53 verse 5 says this, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. That's talking about sin. But what? The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus is the lion and yet he's the lamb. And yet, friends... He's not like your ordinary lamb. Because you look at this passage and what does it say about this lamb? That he has seven horns and seven eyes. You say, what does that mean? Well, seven, of course, is a number of perfection. Eyes was a picture that he sees everything. He knows everything. Horns are a representation of power in that day. So what it's saying is this lamb has all knowledge. He has all power. This lamb is not your ordinary lamb. This lamb is God. And though this lamb had been slain, what is he doing? He is standing and he is ready for action. Which is an amazing picture of what we're celebrating on Easter Sunday. That while Jesus did die, Jesus did not stay in the grave. Jesus, after dying for our sins, rose from the dead three days later and now stands ready today to change lives. He is our lion and he is our lamb. Neither sin nor death could hold him down, which points us to this all-important truth. While we are not worthy on our own, Jesus is infinitely worthy. He is worthy. He is the mediator that humanity desperately needs because he has taken our sin on himself and he offers us new life. 
As John sees all this, he says that all of a sudden, all of heaven breaks out in singing. Look at verse 9. It says, they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Now this new song that they sang is incredibly significant because here's what it tells us. It means that because he is infinitely worthy, because he has conquered sin and death, what? That we can be made worthy again. Because of what Jesus has done, we can enter back into relationship with God. We can have his peace and his joy and his security, all these things that we so desperately long for. It does not matter how unworthy you think you are. You look at that passage and it says that these people will come from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. It will look a lot like our choir, but even more diverse. What that is a picture of is there is no one outside the grasp of God's love. He offers this salvation. He offers this life to anybody that will come and will receive him. No matter how unworthy you may think you are. We can be made worthy again, which means this. Jesus offers you today freedom from the power of sin. If you look at that song, he says, For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. To be ransomed means that you are freed from slavery or oppression. In any ransom situation, what has to happen? There has to be a price paid, and all of a sudden you get freedom. You can't do anything on your own, but if the price is paid, all of a sudden you are released. You're ransomed. That's the picture here. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, we are freed from the power of sin. He paid the cost. It was his blood shed on the cross that frees us from sin. But not only that, Jesus today offers you cleansing from the stain of sin. Look at verse 10. It says, And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God. This is an amazing thing. What it's saying is you can be a priest. Every single one of you in this room. In the Old Testament, the priests, they are the ones who served at the temple. They served in the presence of God. They had relationship with God. And yet what was required? They had to go through consistent ritual cleansing. They had to always be clean, yet they had to do it day after day after day. What the scriptures are saying here is because of what Jesus has done, you can be cleansed from the stain of sin once and for all. Because of what he does, he cleanses us fully. Now, I believe some of you need to hear this. Because I believe there are some of you here today that, that you think about Jesus' cleansing and you think, well, it's kind of like a whiteboard, right? Anybody that uses a whiteboard very often, you realize that no matter how much you may erase, there's still remnants. You can still see what's behind, right? And I think some of us, we think that way with our own sin. We think, I know Jesus cleansed me. I know he died for me. I know he's risen from the dead. But that stain can't be fully gone. The guilt that I feel is too much. I did too many things. I rebelled against him. I did things that that were just dumb. That can't be fully removed. It's like a whiteboard. But what Jesus says in this passage is, no, it's nothing like a whiteboard. When I cleanse, I cleanse you completely. Every ounce of the stain of sin is gone. Not just now, but for all eternity. He says, as far as the east is from the west, so far I have removed your sin from you. 
Friends, that is something to celebrate this morning. Last but not least, because of this, today Jesus offers you new life. You heard the story of two individuals today in baptism that have received that new life. Jesus today offers to make you into a new person. He offers to give you a new spiritual heartbeat that more and more and more and more increasingly reflects him. And not only that, he invites you to to be part of a new community. The church, a community that does not is not divided by nation or tribe or race or, or how great of a sinner you are or how worse you are. Or how many times you attend church? He says, no, this whole community are priests. They are part of a kingdom that knows me and walks with me intimately. The benefits of salvation are many. Perfect relationship and intimacy with Christ. Perfect joy, perfect security, perfect peace, perfect hope. These things we will begin to experience in this life right now. I'm not saying that you aren't going to have struggles. The first Christians, they experienced severe struggle. But what I am saying is all of your circumstances will now be seen in a new light because you will not be alone. You will be in relationship with the God who created you. And this starts now, but it extends through all of eternity. The benefits of relationship are amazing. So we're going to close with this question then. How do we receive this new life that Jesus has provided? How do we receive it? If Jesus has done all of this for us, if he's the mediator that we so desperately need, if he died on the cross and rose from the dead so that we could be free of our sin and be reconnected to God, how do we receive that? Two simple steps. Number one is this. Submit to Jesus as your lion. The Bible calls us to submit to Jesus. Whether you acknowledge it or not, Jesus is the lion. He is the ruler of all things. Today, you will either submit your life to him, the one who loves you, the one who created you with a purpose, or you will continue to try to rule your life on your own. You will continue to reject him with the result that you will still remain unconnected to him from now, but at death for all eternity. Let me just say this. I realize that it's hard to submit, but... What would it be like to submit to one who has all the power in the world and who has your good in mind? What would it be like to submit to one who is for you? Jesus is worthy of submitting our lives to. He is the lion. But on the flip side of that, what do we do? We submit to him as our lion. We confess our sin. We confess that we've rebelled against him. We say, Jesus, I want to live for you. But number two, we trust in Jesus as your lamb. In other words, we stop trying to wipe the stain of sin on our own. We stop trying to earn his salvation through being good, through being kind, through going to church, through doing good things. We stop trying to rely on ourselves and we say, Jesus, I trust totally in what you have accomplished for me. We rely on that. We rest in it. We submit to Jesus as our lion. We trust him as your lamb. The Bible says you do those two things. You will be reconnected with God. Romans 10 verse 9 says this, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For the heart that, with the heart one believes and is justified, that means made right with Christ. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew or Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing riches on all who call on him. 
For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This morning, many of you I don't even know. I don't know where you are spiritually. But have you ever called upon the name of Jesus to be saved? Have you ever submitted your life to him as your line? Have you ever trusted in him as your lamb, the perfect sacrifice that takes away the sin of the world? My prayer all week for you has been that you will experience this relationship with Christ, that you would be reconnected with God, that you would have a new spiritual heartbeat. But you've got to stop trying to live it on your own. You cannot earn it. It has to be received as a gift. Together, as we receive this gift, we come into a community that gets to worship Jesus forever, that gets to enjoy Jesus forever. And that's what I'm going to close with. The very end of the scripture, starting in verse 11, he sees this unremarkable praise break out to Jesus. It says, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Today, as we celebrate the resurrection, we join a praise that is going through all of eternity. We are experiencing in this physical life, Lord, a spiritual reality that Jesus is worthy to be praised. Friends, we are not worthy on our own, but Jesus is infinitely worthy. And because of his death and resurrection, we can be made worthy again. Would you join me in prayer this morning? Heavenly Father, We thank you that you loved us so much that even when we were rebellious towards you, even when we were ingrateful, even when we were worshiping your creation instead of you, that you loved us enough to send Jesus the perfect sacrifice so that we could be brought back into relationship with you. We thank you that Jesus voluntarily, willingly, even though he was sinless, died on the cross for us. And we thank you that Jesus, after three days, rose from the dead, just as had been told in the Old Testament. And we thank you that today we serve a Lord and Savior who is not still slain, but that is alive and active and is here available, offering this gift of incredible salvation, of relationship with him, even this morning. I pray for those in this room that have never called upon the name of Jesus. They've never submitted their lives. They've never trusted in what you've accomplished for them. I pray for every single person in this room that has not done that, that they would find that you are worthy to be submitting to. I pray that they would see that they cannot be good enough on their own to earn your favor, to earn your salvation, but that you have provided as a gift. I pray that they would receive that gift, that they would submit their lives and trust in you. And for those in this room that have already done that, we've, we've submitted our lives, we desire to worship you, but we're struggling. I pray today that this reminder of his death and resurrection, of the immense love that he has for us would change us. That we would go from this place valuing him more, worshiping more, desiring to put every piece of our lives 
lay it down at his feet. We thank you for your death and resurrection, Jesus. We pray that we would go from this place and live worthy of what you've done for us. It's in the name of Jesus we pray together. Amen. This morning, if...